so it was about two years ago now we started recording in the Cards Against Humanity studio. Is that right, Lauren? Yes, that's not how long our show's been around, but that's when we started making the big bucks and doing the big show in the big studio. We don't make any money. Right, and I and I think I, I'm sure I said something, and maybe I'll go try to find the clip like, oh, you know, I've been working with Cards Against Humanity, but I can't really say what I've been doing, and I, I'm sure we can announce it soon. Well, so Two it's, years of it's, hearing about the secret project. It's currently October 26, 2019, and... Uh, you might have seen my name in the news this past week. So uh, <laughs> I'm on the founding team for the Chicago Board Game Cafe, which is really exciting. I swear this isn't a commercial, but I just feel like it's an, it's been an elephant in the room for two years. So we might as well put it out there that I'm going to be the director of uh, games and retail for this really cool cafe that's coming to Chicago. It's the, uh, the first full-service board game cafe, uh, meaning we have a full kitchen and... Uh, a really cool event space, a nice retail shop that Lauren gets a lot of delight is is named after me, which I'm very embarrassed yeah, about. Yeah, I get a lot of delight out of it. You don't seem to, oddly. I'm embarrassed about it. <laughs> it's but, called uh, Garneau. It's, it's so silly. But anyway, that's what I've been up to since um, March 2017, and I'm really glad that we can finally talk about it. And if you're in Chicago, you should come Come say, hey, we've been doing really cool events in the gaming industry, too. Lauren and I actually just worked on one together for the uh, for another podcast that you might be familiar with. We helped the designers of the Adventure Zone card game uh, play do their first public playtest of it. Yeah, Eric's got, he's humble about it, but he's got so much clout into fandoms that maybe he doesn't necessarily even invest in himself. So when he heard well, about... that's why I have you. Right. <laughs> and so he heard about this Adventure Zone opportunity, and he was like... Hey, can you give me a hand? I know you really like this thing. And dear listeners, I really like this thing. I got to be Taco from TV. And my friend Adam, who I did improv with in college, came out and was Magnus Burnsides. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but Clint McElroy, uh, who would be the third of the Trace Horny Boys, uh, actually recorded a message. So even though we didn't have uh, Merle, uh, like a Merle cosplayer, Merle himself was there by by talking to the playtesters. It was so amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. And I'm hopeful that that's the kind of things that we can continue to do. And I just want to say, like, there's so many things I have to care about on a day-to-day basis that, like, I'm really glad I know people who care about other cool things and can supplement my (laughs) caring level because I just do not have time for another podcast. But uh, I'm glad that it brings joy to the world. For the Adventure Zone fans out there, and I know there are several, including our friends at DreamWorks, I just want you to know that even though this event we did happened at Cards Against Humanity, I pushed really hard to get it at a Costco. Well, we tried and we talked to the, like, we found the nicest probably Costco manager in the world (laughs) and he was like guys I pushed this up the chain so far and I just could not get anyone to agree that it was fun and it's like yeah we get it like Costco's uh, I don't want to screw our sponsorship deal but Costco's boring we understand but this guy I think his name was Adam and he's the man like one of the managers of the Costco in Lincoln Park was seriously like the coolest dude and he tried so hard so thank you for that he is our Garfield the deals warlock anyway how about (laughs) She-Ra Ain't it fun Welcome back, all of our friends, to She-Ra Progressive with Power. My name is Lauren. I am still Eric. You almost took a drink of water right as it was time to introduce yourself. You've done that before with Pop-Tarts, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I finished my Pop-Tarts before we started recording this time as a, a show of gratitude to our listeners. Proud of you. We're really growing in our... <laughs> What is the sixth season Our as a podcast? Our professionalism is through the roof these days. Uh, so as you all know, the new season of she is dropping, did we say the 5th of November? The f- Tuesday, November 5th, and it is a 13-episode season this time. It's a time. big one. Uh, so excited to sit down and, and binge it all when it comes out. And as per usual, Eric and I have been doing a lot of talking with each other and with our friends about what we think might happen, what we believe is coming. Uh To speak to this a little bit, we brought in a really cool guest who we met through an email. Uh, Eric, (laughs) do you have the email in front of you, how we first made this contact? No, you don't. I can pull it up. Yeah. um, I think we mentioned it when we interviewed Amy Carrera, which, by the way, was our last episode. So if you're going from Amy to this, thanks for sticking around. And... uh, Please stay tuned. We did some real continuity if we mentioned him on Amy's episode. I th- I think that we did. Uh, so 
this gentleman reached out to us and uh, let us know that. Please correct me if I'm if I'm painting too sunny of a picture, but essentially that our episodes were helpful in a research project this person was doing, which I'm really floored by because, as we've talked about previously, I have some experience in the worlds of like nerd academia. And I just think that's uh, super duper cool. And the the research this person was doing um, culminated in a presentation at the DePaul. What is the conference called? Fan the DePaul Fan Studies Network of North America Conference, which is uh, happening right now as we record this. And so he's in town, and we kind of surprised him by saying, "Well, while you're in town, do you want to just come hang?" And he was nice enough to say yes. So everyone, please meet Zach Stigler, the Associate Professor of Communications Media at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Hello. Thank you for having me. And I promise that that initial email was not uh, fishing for a guest spot. <laughs> we didn't. Well, your, your surprise when we asked was genuine. So that was quite clear. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take much. That's the secret. <laughs> if you're doing something cool, we'll talk to you. OK, I have a non anything related question, except you probably get this all the time. Where is Indiana University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's very confusing to people who are not from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, Indiana University of Pennsylvania is situated in the borough of Indiana, Pennsylvania, which is the county seat of Indiana County, Pennsylvania, which is about 55 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Oh, great. Okay, so western end of the state. Yes. And I mean, it's close enough that I actually, I'm from Pittsburgh originally and have since relocated my personal life to the city of Pittsburgh. Are you anywhere near Youngstown? Um, a, it is a short drive across the border. I'm never going to find this, but I went – I'll cut this from the episode. <laughs> I, I went to some really great brewery in a college town near there, and all I remember, it was next to a store that was called Vape to the Future. Back, oh, no, no, that would have been the right thing to call it. It was called Back to the Vape. <laughs> no, vape, we have to keep this in the show. <laughs> vape to the Future – is like what it should have been called. Uh, Slippery Rock Brewing was the okay. restaurant. And let me look up where that was. This <laughs> is so pointless. Except that Back to the Vape is really, really horrible. We become a little bit more like the McElroy brothers every day. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Chicago. How have you found it so far? I have found it to be pleasant. It's been quite a while since I've been in Chicago. Although my one complaint thus far is... Although it's only a, a brisk, you know, 45 degrees, which is nothing for you people, um, many of the public spaces I've been have been cranking the heat like it's 87 degrees and I'm sweating through most of my clothes. A lot of those, a lot of those places only have one <laughs> setting, which is off or on. And uh, so if it's on, it's just really on. It's true. So how did you get uh, wrapped up in the, the fan studies conference? Um, well, so I had from... the the last year or so, I, mean, I had this kind of idea kicking around, revolving around um, sort of the initial discussions and fan discourse around the new Shira show. And so I had this idea kicking around. I was kind of looking for a venue for it. And there were a few options that just didn't really fit into my personal schedule for the year. Um, so this came up and I said, this seems like a perfect fit. And it was accepted. And so I like to think that it was a perfect fit. Um, and the conference itself has been great. Um, our particular panel, although I have no relationship with the other folks on it, um, the, whoever organized the panel did a great job of placing like-minded people together because there was another presentation on um, some similar discussions about the Voltron reboot, um, then a broader discussion about sort of anti-fandom and anti-anti-fandom and that kind of stuff. So it was great. So I did something like that in, uh, I don't know if I've talked about this before, in Monmouth, New Jersey in 2012, I went to a conference on Bruce Springsteen studies. Yes. And I presented a paper on how his evolving use of pronouns and especially embracing the, the second person uh, showed his... Uh, and then first person plural showed his transformation. Is this a real story you're this telling? This is true. Why do you think this is a bit? Because his, <laughs> his, his pronouns evolved from a very like third person singular, like I am telling a story, into a second person general, into a first person plural, which to me shows his evolution from like uh, singer songwriter to folk troubadour. And so that was what my paper was about. And so I, I have some experience in fan conferences. It was really weird because everyone there, like. In one, everyone's kind of a daywalker, right? Because you all have like very normal jobs, like that require you to be a functional person in the world. But also, everyone there has looked into their area of expertise way more than any other person right. should. And it's I, not, I could, it, sorry, I just 
the fact that there's a Bruce Springsteen fan conference makes me feel like your life is a fever dream. <laughs> and every day it gets weirder. And I admire and love that so much. But I'm going to be over here rebooting and melting down for a second. Please carry on with whatever you were about to say. I can say I can verify there's not a bit because um, they, they do they do that conference every few years. And I was at one um, maybe two years ago. The oh, yeah, you won? At Monmouth, yeah. You went to the newest one. Okay, because great. Because they actually... That that year, you guys could have had like a meet cute there. No, we could have strolled the Asbury Park boardwalk together. And I, I really okay. I did that with some of the other conference goers, and I, there was a dude here from there from London who played in a children's band where they like dress up and shit. And me and him went to the basement of a guitar shop and just started jamming on uh, um, "Land of Hope and Dreams" together. It's nice. one of my favorite memories of all time. It's just us in this Jersey guitar shop on the boardwalk playing Springsteen songs together. So I guess maybe. Because Bruce Springsteen did, in fact, make his way into this episode, maybe you should talk about the lovely gift that Zach brought. Yeah, so Zach uh, is, even though he wasn't pining for a guest spot, he has proven himself to be a a (laughs) spectacular guest so far. He brought Lauren and I some very lovely things. So this is Peak Eric, uh, Marvel Comics Transformers from 1985, uh, issue 14. Uh, It's one of my favorite comic book covers of all time, so... It's um, the Autobot Hoist, who's like a big green guy that turns into a construction implement thing, uh, saving Brick Spring Street and the 10th Avenue band from a Decepticon attack. Because, see, the Autobots go pull into the parking lot because they hear that Brick Spring Street is, like, really popular, and they want to hear why with the humans. And then the Decepticons realize that the sonic energy his concert generates can be used to fill Energon cubes. And so Hoist ends up getting involved, even though Optimus says not to, and saves the humans from the Decepticons. So I'm very appreciative of having this comic. This is really <laughs> sick. Meanwhile, um, I got a pin of my most favorite character, Queen Angela. And what I'm doing right now is feverishly Googling because Zach correctly mentioned there's not a lot of Angela merch out there. It's super not a thing. And on the Entertainment Earth website for a while, they were pre-selling a Queen Angela and Glimmer Doll two-pack. Yeah. And I, it doesn't appear to have ever surfaced. And in fact, there's, there's rumors that it's not happening at all. And I just really hope, I just really hope we get it. Well, what, did like something happen to Angela that... Would like, delay her merchandise. <laughs> we'll get into that in the prediction section in I, a hot second. I do want to say, uh, though, we should mention we also we got another email from a person uh, who wasn't traveling to Chicago for a fan studies conference, but a listener who uh, expressed some disappointment that we very cavalierly spoiled the Angela death last we season. We did. We did because um, in all of our humbleness, I don't think we actually ever realized that maybe people were actually listening along with us in chronological order. Yeah. And so we are so sorry and we are going to keep it spoiler free from now on. We won't look ahead. Yes, absolutely. So our apologies to Sarah and to anyone else who was upset. Uh, we did not intend to hurt you. We just really thought that um, no one was following along. But it's really cool that you are and we'll be very mindful of that in the future. Anyway, on to nicer things. What in particular brought you to the conference? Can you tell us a little bit about your paper? Was it about pronouns? Uh, so what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of. Kind of, right, yeah, yeah. In, in a sense. Um, well, and, and some there was some anti-pronoun talk and some of the discourse I was looking at. Um, so, you know, I should say that the reboot itself, I hadn't, like, it came up in my feed and I was like, yeah, I'll get to that. That seems like it might be interesting. And then sort of as that was happening, um, as we were talking about off mic, the some of the more uh, offensive um, fan discourse had moved even beyond the fan forums um, and gotten some virality. And anyway, so I was taken aback by some of the, as many people were, um, some of the comments about the the ways in which um, Noel Stevenson and crew have been very consciously and very um, deliberately building a more inclusive character world, right, in terms of um, gender gender performativity, racial characteristics, sexuality, etc. Um, so I started sort of looking through some of these comments on Twitter and YouTube and the He-Man.org fan forums, 
and was taken even more aback. I didn't realize quite how deep this, this stuff went. Um, so what I wanted to do was sort of look at the, um, essentially the toxic fan discourse that arises in this particular fandom. And it's not unique either, right? I mean, there's, I sort of feel like the Ghostbusters reboot is the, the pinnacle moment of this or the, the kickoff of it. Um, and from what I've learned in discussions this weekend, I mean, it's not a particularly unique phenomenon. I mean, other fan cultures are experiencing this also. Um, but so I want to look at the, the ways in which um, those kinds of gestures towards inclusivity were um, opposed or reacted to or the ways in which reactions to those gestures were um, primed some toxicity to rise from the fandom. And what drew you to that area in particular? I, I assume you've got some fandom of He-Man and She-Ra back in your past to want to investigate. Yeah. I don't know how deep you want to go into my backstory, but um, grew up watching He-Man and She-Ra. Um, and that was my childhood fandom for sure. I wasn't really into like G.I. Joe and that kind of stuff. I mean, some stuff tangentially, but He-Man was the thing. Um, I should have brought a picture of me as Skeletor when I was four years old for Aww. Halloween. It's a great photo. Um, my dad even, so it came with a mask and a sword. My dad made like a, you know, whatever the armor for me out of cardboard and purple paint. It was beautiful. Heck Anyhow. yeah, dad. <laughs> um, yeah, shout out to dad. Um, and had not really followed through with the fandom much after that. I, mean, I, I sort of chimed in um, when the 2002 series came out and really enjoyed that. But didn't, again, just sort of consumed it and didn't really engage much in the fandom. Um, and then what's interesting about this the Shiga reboot is it kind of drew me back in in ways that I didn't expect. Like I expected to just watch it, maybe enjoy it and move on. Um, and I shouldn't say, I don't want to make it come off as I'm an extremely active in the fandom and, and anything like that. Um, but it has led me into sort of going back and getting interested in some of the other properties or offshoots of the properties. Like I'm, I've already, I've not purchased a comic book in who knows, 15 years, um, but I've put pre-orders in for the Tim Seeley multiverse series because that just sounds so fascinating to me too. So um, thank you for exposing us to that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, I've, I have some background fandom with this for sure. So good or bad, I guess, what were some of the patterns that you started observing out there in the, in the fan dialogue? You, had, you said you were a looking at a very specific portion of time, right? Yeah. So what I found when I started digging in um, was I, I had to continuously narrow the scope of what I was looking at. Um, so I wasn't necessarily thinking about a particular time frame when I started, but as I realized how much source material there was, I had to make some kind of defined end limits. So I started looking <clears throat> from the, the initial drop of the images in July 2018, the promotional stills, um, through the drop of the season one in November 18. Um, and even that was, particularly on the fan forums, just a lot of material to sift through. And not all of it bad, I should say. Um, but, you know, to be thorough, sort of have to read through the hundreds of pages of, of comments and interaction. Um, so I limited it to that. And then as I was looking at those three platforms, um, I further had to limit it to, well, I some themes emerged, um, including defining what I call defining femininity, body shaming, and uh, I'm not racist, but, and I'm not homophobic, but. Woof. <laughs> um, so then I had to further limit it for the interest of time and presentation. So I really focused on the, the first two, um, looking at gender representations and the, um, the toxic reactions to those representations in the show. Mm. Or I shouldn't even say the show, right? I should say the, the promotional material prior to the show's drop. I mean, my observation was purely anecdotal, so I'm sure you have hard numbers, but it really felt to me like the people who hated it weren't necessarily the majority. I'm sure they weren't, but they felt like they had to chime in more than anybody else. So you see a lot of the same names coming back. Yes. And I think with through some discussions with other folks at the conference, this seems to be a pattern, too, that they're not necessarily the majority, but they, you know, this is... Metaphorically speaking, I suppose, but they are the loudest, perhaps, um, you know, and that's certainly they, because they stick out. Right. But there's certainly a lot of positivity, even in that that initial time frame, um, you know, people very excited about the inclusivity and the representations that they brought into the show um, in terms of their own identities or in terms of them sharing with their children or what have you. So, yeah, it, it can it's easy to make the 
the negative comments sort of stand out and stand for the fandom, but that's certainly not the case at all. Well, Shira, in particular, I have to imagine is a very lopsided case because a huge portion of who this show is for is made up of children, like literal children. And so kids aren't going to be on the He-Man.org forums arguing with these 40-year-old guys. Those, uh, you know, two halves of the fandom, never may they meet. And I think it, it can often lead to the false conclusion that, wow, everyone hates this show. But the people who like it would never, ever, ever come to this place and say these things. They're right. just not there in the first place. Right. And the, this all dovetails with the thing we talk about a lot of the time, this notion of, like, fan ownership. It's really fascinating the way people who feel that they have, like, a claim to some identity of fandom respond to, like, a new person in the space saying, hey, actually, this is for everybody. You know? It, I, and I think that some of the discussions that have we've had this weekend in the conference – um, I mean, reboots seem particularly primed for that kind of um, ownership. I mean, fan ownership has always been um, a thing, right? But when you're working with reboots, right, because you have that established fan base. So, you, I mean, you're dealing with issues of nostalgia and nostalgic attachment, mm-hmm. um, which already had, and typically with properties that people, the original audience experienced in childhood, right? So there's a particular kind of attachment, a particular kind of investment to it. Um, and there's been some work done on this. Um, I can't remember the author's first name, but um, Proctor, I think William Proctor is his name, um, did an article on the Ghostbusters reboot from 2016 and came up with a concept of totemic nostalgia, right? And this is where you have this sort of totemic text that you hold near and dear to your heart. And it's not inherently toxic, but it, it primes for toxicity. Um, and that, that nostalgia issue really complicates the relationship between fan and text. That is fascinating. And now, I mean, to dovetail with our, you know, our favorite topic everything's kind of taken on this political significance as well in this era of like quote identity politics and their backlash, uh, even though, you know, I'm, I'm stealing this from some tweet of a smarter person, but the only identity politics in the 2016 elections was like middle-aged white people. But these are the folks who like hang on so tightly, I think to, to these things that they feel like define them for some reason. I, I don't know. I remember when the Ghostbusters reboot came out, I remember tweeting like, this can't ruin my childhood because my dad already did that. And it was one of my most popular <laughs> tweets. But I feel like that's like, why? Why does it matter? Like, and again, it's not everybody who's doing these things, right? But there's a lot of loud voices and the anonymity of the internet mm-hmm. and the honestly, the feeling of power you get from being an asshole to someone when you don't have to look them in the face. Well, it makes the internet a very hard place to be, especially if you are one of these new, more diverse people coming into a fandom. If you want to share the fan art that you drew or the costume that you made, and you you constantly have to be worried that someone's going to come out and body shame you or something, it, it really does hinder the ability of well-meaning people to have fun. Right. Which seems to go against, I mean, and I brought this up yesterday, that you know, even as academics studying fan cultures, I mean, we, we're also likely fans ourselves, right? And, and we have experienced in fandoms, um, you know, what, what we value about fandoms is the connection and the community and the sort of acceptance, right? And that seems to be, the breakdown of that seems to be unique to sort of the social media culture also. I'm sure it's been there prior, but that seems to have certainly amplified it. Yeah, Lauren and I, in the off-season, we're talking about kind of the amazing things fandom has done for us. Like, I don't know, probably the best part of my year was going out to California and hanging out with DreamWorks, and that all started because the stupid show I liked came back, and I was like, Lauren, let's let's engage with this, you know? And that's that's wonderful. I think the Adventure Zone event we did was another great example of, like, no toxicity, just celebratory. And I don't know, it's it's just like... It's harder to curate those spaces in an age where there's not there's less consequences for being mean. But it's not impossible and the upside is still wonderful. I guess the challenge is how do we what do we do about it? Right. And I don't have <laughs> right. an answer for that. Right. <laughs> but I think I think you doing real academic research and data based work to pick it apart a little bit is something that you're doing. It is it is a way to maybe diagnose some systemic stuff and really show the receipts, show the work and say, I have proven now, at least in my small corner, that 
there's there are some problems and maybe we can work together to fix them. Sure, because we can't dismantle until we understand, right? That's how I feel about like the the um, people say you shouldn't empathize with those who voted for Donald Trump, but I always say I don't think empathy equates to uh, a free pass because if we empathize, we can understand, and if we understand, we can fight. That's how I look at it. That makes sense. So speaking of uh, our favorite fandom, we really should break down a couple of things that we've seen out there. Briefly, before we get to the trailer, I do want to mention that uh, in the between season interims, DreamWorks has released a bunch of YouTube videos, uh, character vlogs called the Princess Rebel Recruitment videos. And I watched them all just so I could be able to talk about them. And there's not there's not a lot new there. Like if you haven't gone on YouTube, there's you're not missing any can, uh, canonical tidbits necessarily. They are mostly, I think, there to keep kids on YouTube remembering that this show exists and remembering what happened. There's a lot of sort of flashback and um, plot summary stuff surrounding each character. So when season four comes online, all the kids at home, I think, will be caught up. There are only two observations that I want to make from these. One is that it gets me back on the Mermista Seahawk train. Ooh. Uh, I was I was off. Maybe should maybe I should say boat. I was <laughs> <laughs> I was off the boat for a while, and I think I'm back on but, it. And it, you were off because of one of the Instagram cartoons, right? Yeah, yeah, all of this all of this bee cannon. You know, there was an Instagram cartoon where I felt like she treated him like real garbage, and I wasn't sure about it. But uh, in her Princess Rebel recruitment video, uh, she shows this tendency to tell really tall tales and brag about herself and put herself into scenes as a hero when she wasn't even there to begin with. And knowing that that is a, a thing Seahawk loves to do, he tells the pirate tall tales also, it actually made them... Uh, seem more of a match. I got to be reminded that their personalities have a lot of common ground, and maybe I ship it again. Ship. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> the other thing is, um, I don't know if these are considered canon, and I guess we should ask our friends at DreamWorks because the final episode of these uh, showed, okay, all of the princess characters that we have profiled and all of the horde characters that we've profiled, they put them in sort of a last cute little standoff and the princesses were able to do the like light up together and shoot rainbows thing from that previous finale and that really on the canon show seemed like a huge like next level achievement and now they can apparently just like bust it out and shoot it like a laser beam kind of whenever <laughs> they want and uh I don't know if that's canon. I don't know if that's a thing, if that's just a power that they can tap whenever they want. But there's a lot of rainbows flying around in the trailer, too. So I think everyone having more powers is going to be a thing. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, I guess we haven't really seen them all together since the season one finale, though, right? So uh, especially um, Natasha and... Um, Spinnerella have like not had almost anything to do since season one. So yeah, and they're in the trailer. So I was really excited to see them. A huge final trailer just dropped a couple of days ago, and I think we could maybe just break down some of the beats. Point the first, Glimmer is becoming queen. Yeah, she's got a cool new outfit and a new do, and it. I don't know. Maybe it's just her dress, but it feels like they've aged her up a little bit, too. A little bit, yeah. Noelle Stevenson did an interview about this and did express that the clothes are supposed to be too big for her, like Glimmer is not exactly comfortable. So I think they did age her up a little with the hairstyle, but also the clothing ages her up a lot, maybe against her will. I don't think she necessarily feels herself right away. And I've the teaser that was out oh, a couple of weeks ago, I felt that too. Not even what I thought looking at that was actually from Catra. I felt like, are they aging them up? And then um, in the extended one, it looks like Bo's aging up too. So it's interesting how that maturing might also impact their character development. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a small time jump. Um, it can't be a significant one because... Right. If Bright Moon doesn't have a queen, they're not going to go without one for a super long time. But yeah, it does seem like everyone's character design brought us forward a bit. 
Yeah, totally. Do you think that Angela's really gone? Oh, we're going right there, huh? So one of the key things in this trailer that I really wanted to talk about is not what's in it, but what's missing. Hmm. And a couple of things are missing. One is Mm -hmm. anything having to do with that plot point. Yeah. And given how the show, this last season ended, I am so certain that there's going to be a plot line at some point where Mike is alive, we may get to see him as Red Knight, and I think it would actually make a lot of sense for him to be Red Knight very soon in a world where he doesn't want to interfere with Glimmer's queendom. He can be disguised and let her continue to do the queen thing because if he showed who he was, people would want to make him the ruler, and I don't think he would want that, especially if his mission is to get Angela back. We didn't see any of that, though, but... I really think they were seeding it when Micah himself was like, wait, Angela, I'm not. I think he was saying he's not dead. And I don't think Angela is either. Uh, But the other thing that was missing was Entrapta. Mm -hmm. We don't see Entrapta at all. We also don't see her next to Hordak. We see a very partner-like relationship with Katra and Hordak. Like their trust is rebuilt. And I imagine he probably believed Katra when Katra said Entrapta was a traitor. And in one way or another, I think Hordak has probably sent her away. There's something else that was missing, and I'm frankly a little hurt that you didn't pick up on it. What? Shadow Weaver. Shadow we- I saw a screenshot of Shadow Weaver, and I don't know if it was in the trailer or if it was just like an Entertainment Weekly screenshot, but I've seen a picture of her still in Bright Moon, and she's got this big pair of scissors, and there are these weird, like, thorny things growing around her. My interpretation of that one image was that she's, like, making a creepy garden still in Bright Moon and just, like, making herself at home. <laughs> and so I think she's still there. On, on the good side for now. Nice. We also see Huntara. We see a new potential princess character who the fandom was going back and forth on. Is it is it Sweet Bee or is it Flutterina? But it's not Bee Wings. I think it's definitely a butterfly. It's got to be Flutterina, right? Yeah, I think it's Flutterina. And then uh, the the new character that's made the most waves is Double Trouble. Lots of news about Double Trouble being a non-binary shapeshifter that uses they-them pronouns uh, voiced by Jacob Tobiah. And lots of people are excited not only to see just a wonderful example of non-binary representation, but the, the plot point. They're talking about how there's a horde spy and there's a screenshot where there's two Catras, and I'm assuming one of the Catras is Double Trouble. So we're going to have the trope at play for at least this season that anybody could actually be Double Trouble in disguise. It's also worth noting, so for those who aren't familiar like me because I'm old, Jacob Tobiah is a kind of a notable internet presence and also an author of uh, this book called Sissy, A Coming-of-Age Gender Story, which is... This is probably very wonderful. Uh, and uh, it seems like there's a lot of excitement over the casting of them. So I think that's super great. Yeah, they have a lot of uh, activism chops before all of this. It's like a very different route than when they cast Gina Davis, yeah. who was more an acting chops type. And so I just I continue to be impressed by the people that DreamWorks finds. Yeah, hearing Gina Davis' voice in that trailer, it's like this moment of gravity of like, good Lord, this is like a true icon of stage and screen well and like it's kind of i guess you'd call it a political issue in hollywood although i wish it wasn't the idea that we are casting people to play themselves or what they represent you know there's so many cis actors playing trans people or heterosexual actors playing lgbt and they just seem to be being careful about okay we wrote a character that is non-binary they're going to be trade by a be they're going to be portrayed by a non-binary person. Yeah. Just thank goodness. And I don't know why that's not normal. I think the only principal actor who's like a cis white man in the show is uh, is Swiftwind, who is like among the least favorite characters. <laughs> not by me. I think Swiftwind's great, but. The fandom you know. doesn't like Swiftwind? No. Huh. In fact, Ray Geiger tweeted last night. Uh, I think they said. Creators are just like fans. We also hate Switzerland. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that uh, I noticed in this trailer that backs up, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a prediction of mine, but certainly a hope, 
is that Hordak becomes the more active fighter that we saw in the 80s show. Yeah. And this is a very action-heavy trailer. We see him with new weapons and also the gun arm, like yes. the classic 80s toy gun arm. I think probably through his relationship with Katra, he's he's getting closer to what he was in the old cartoon, actually coming out on the battlefield, and maybe we'll see him fight She-Ra this time. Uh, it is kind of sad now that I'm saying it out loud, though, because I'm betting the reason he's so agile now is the suit that Entrapta made for him. Yeah. So he's really cashing in on that friendship while throwing it in the garbage. Yeah. What a jerk. <laughs> well, so let's let's do this. What's one thing for everybody that you'd love to see this season explore and one place maybe you hope it doesn't go either for like in story reasons, like you just would feel bad for the characters or like narrative reasons. Like you just don't think it's a worthwhile Avenue. I don't know if we're going to get it this early, but the final sort of looking forward thing that I feel really strongly about is that Horde Prime has no reason to back up Hordak. We know that Hordak was rejected by Horde Prime. He was like the shitty little brother who is exiled and nobody cares and he's got this idea in his head that he's going to open this portal and Horde Prime is imminent and Horde Prime's going to come through and all of his homies are going to roll in and like rock face and I just don't think they're going to be on the same team mm -hmm. if Horde Prime does in fact resent or dislike Hordak Horde Prime is either going to show up and attack Hordak or Horde Prime's going to show up and go Thanks, Hordak. Uh, we'll take it from here and not give him the power that he wants. And I hope we get to see that this season and not three seasons from now, because I'm really looking forward to it. I kind of have a feeling that the season is going to arc towards his arrival in the final episode. Yeah. I, uh, narratively, that would make sense. Although with a 13-episode season, we've normally seen something big happen halfway through as well. This puts us at 39 total, right? Oh, so I don't know. Because the first season was 13, and then a, a six and a... Six and seven, si I think. Six and seven, right? And now a 13. And I think they're going to do 52 episodes total. That's the number that's been in my head, because I think it was on IMDb at the start. Oh. So I bet there's only one or two, one full season or two half seasons left. So I wonder if season five will be the all-out war once Horde Prime arrives. There's also the line in the trailer about a great evil waking up, and I'm intrigued about what that means, yeah. because it seems to be more of a planetary thing, more almost more of a local thing. Horde Prime arriving would not be an evil that's waking up. True. Yeah, so for me, I have I have my fan guesses. I think narratively the thing I'd most like to see is a, a kind of Scorpia get get out of the toxicity that she's got going on yeah. with Catra. And it looks like that might happen because there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of shots of Hordak and Catra together. And there's one shot of Catra and Scorpia together, but there's no shots of Scorpia and Hordak together. So that would be cool. I think like... Extra narratively, I'd I'd like to. I, I'm always curious as to what pulls they're gonna find from the classic series. Obviously, we've got a few new characters. We've got some more princesses and and um, horde agents. I think I I really think Angela's on Eternia. I just have this gut feeling, and I wonder if we're gonna we're gonna see any of that. So or or whatever Eternia is, because again, I'm a new adventures truther now. Maybe it's a starship. <laughs> Mara's definitely in this season. Right. So we'll see what happens. And I don't know what I... Oh, yeah, you asked what we don't want yeah, to see. What, yeah. let's, let's do all what we do want to see okay. and then circle back around. Great. Well, something that I have had been thinking about, and I don't know if the, the full trailer um, goes against us a little bit, but to circle back, I don't think... I also don't think that Angela is dead. And even though it was played as a death narratively, um, but the deal was, right, that whoever, quote-unquote, sacrifices themselves stays on the other side of the portal, Right. So I was sort of concocting this thing. It doesn't necessarily say where you know, that portal, what the other side of the portal is. And I was sort of thinking about the, the back and forth dynamics of Hordak trying to open the portal to bring Horde Prime in and that kind of stuff. And so I'm wondering if there's some kind of you know, a realization on Glimmer's part or whatever that particularly with Shadow Weaver around in um, Bright Moon now of 
if we open the portal, perhaps we can bring back Queen Angela. But the cost of that or the risk of that is facilitating Horde Prime's invasion, right? And so there's sort of this, not not a Faustian bargain, but something along those lines, Ooh, right? dark. That's a good narrative twist. I like that. Yeah, what if Glimmer's the one who ends up handing over the planet because she wants her mom back? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> that's good. All right, what, what do you hope the show stays away from? We don't really get negative a lot, and this doesn't necessarily have to be negative, but, like, I guess what what directions do you think are not as rich as as others? Yeah, I know I'm not on the I'm not on the main like fandom beat with this one. I I'm just not big into Catradora. I feel like the show really wants me to be into Catradora and support like a Catra redemption arc where they finally get to be together. But I feel about them very similarly to how I feel about like a Kylo Ren and Rey story. I'm not here for abusers who have abused their lovers and hurt many, many people getting smooches. It's just not my favorite. Mm. And so it's not that I'm entirely against it, but what I'm going to say is if they want to go there, they're going to have to do a lot of work, a lot of work for me to get on that team. Katra is so far away from being a healthy partner or even a healthy friend to Adora right now that seeing her up there next to Hordak, like with just things exploding and burning all around them, like, oh my God, Adora, don't. It would just take a lot. Yeah. I I think that um, there may be a redemptive arc, but I don't think it's a casual redemptive arc. I think there are other characters that could fit into that and be more, and that there's even some hints towards that. But, I mean, there have been so many opportunities, particularly in earlier seasons, for a turn, right, that that hasn't taken um, and instead. And even then, in the last couple seasons with uh, the tension between Catra and Hordak, where she just, at every turn where she's denied, she doubles down on her um, you know, abusive or her rage or whatever you want to call it. So I, I think that that is probably not going to happen. Is there something that, other than that maybe, that you don't want to see or you're not interested in? Um, nothing comes to mind. I, I'm I'm pretty open to sort of where they're they're taking it. I mean, I I feel like the last two episodes of season three might have been my favorite episodes so far, just because they're so bizarre, mm-hmm. um, and I like that kind of disoriented narrative that they're doing. So yeah, yeah. I think the show has gotten like bolder in its storytelling structure since it's gone on, which is nice. And yeah, I think as far as things I I don't want, I I would just echo your sentiments that like. I know the fandom loves to uh, ship, like, pairs where one of the characters needs a hard redemption, and I just want to... I also advocate for careful redemption arcs, which I think the creators would probably be behind. But, like, not just Catra, but, like, Entrapta, too. Like, she needs to earn her way out of the horrible things she's done. Even though she also was, like, the victim of Horde Lies, she's done some victimizing herself, uh, and Scorpio to a degree, but I, I think I'm probably most um, most on board with the Scorpio redemption because it seems like her parents kind of essentially sold her into slavery. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested to see how that plot line develops. There's going to be a very awkward <laughs> just conversation, I guess, because where we left this show, the lever that was going to destroy the universe got pulled and the last things we saw as viewers were sort of alternate timeline things. And now everyone's got to come back together into the real world to be like, so, pulled the lever, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like an endgame thing in a way, even though, but their endgame came like halfway through their show, which is pretty cool. So, the more I watch this trailer and the more announcements there are about like Double Trouble and. I I just feel like this is getting, in a good way, further and further away from the source material. They're doing more original stuff. They're telling more original stories. She-Ra becomes less and less the point, Mm -hmm. and it becomes more and more about unity and diversity and togetherness and this world. I'm going to ask a very old question, then. Do we still want to see He-Man? I personally... Um, you know, when I started watching it, it wasn't clear to me whether or not, you know, He-Man or other matches universe was going to be sort of built into it or not. And I was really, given all the other um, character development and, and structures they've made narratively, 
I'm kind of glad that they didn't include him, not to to diss my boy, but um, I like I really like the idea of He-Man or She-Ra in that world existing sort of on its own. Um, and there's, I mean, there has there have been some um, Easter eggy kind of things, right? But there hasn't really been any anything to lead us on to think that there will be. And you know, marketing from a marketing standpoint, it might make sense with a Kevin Smith thing on the horizon, but I. I don't predict that. That is something I don't want to see. To circle back to the first question, wow. I guess. Yeah. So my answer is a little more complicated because I I do love He Man and the Kevin Smith show is interesting. Although you might have seen Noel is really pushing for like a multiverse style crossover where both shows get to keep their own style and do a Christmas special. And I think that would be without without their like sharing a continuity. It would be like, oh, you know, these two universes have collided for some weird reason and now we have to teach Skeletor the meaning of Christmas, <laughs> which would be amazing. <laughs> I I think if we're continuing, I, I, I'm a little off, off reality here, but if we're continuing on the new adventures line, it feels like this is a world where Adam never knows about Adora and like their paths develop totally separately and I'm totally fine with that. I do think, though, we need to dive a little more into Eternia and Grayskull. And I think for narrative completeness, Adora has to learn that she is the daughter of a king and queen, that she is a true princess. I feel like the show is begging that from the very beginning, and I'd be really surprised if she doesn't, in some oblique way, learn about Randor and Marlena. So I don't know whether... I doubt He-Man ever shows up, but I bet, I bet there's another baby, and I bet we know who her mm. parents are by the end of the show. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there, without dropping names, wasn't there an interaction with Light Hope where it was revealed in the last season that she was a princess? Was there? I don't know. I might be misremembering that, but... We see Hordak go through a portal and come back with a baby, and then he tells Shadow Weaver that he didn't find what he was looking for. But that was, like, all that we saw of that. Do we have anything to say about Light Hope, by the way? You brought Light Hope up, and... We had a fan letter a while ago imply that maybe Light Hope was a weapon or Light Hope was going to weaponize something and Light Hope was part of the reason we shut down access between the worlds. I don't think anything in the trailer is there to be had about it, though. I just don't Mm -hmm. want to forget that that was like a question mark Mm. that we still have. Yeah. There's some connection between like Light Hope, Grayskull, Eternia, Mara. It's out there. But I bet that whatever the answer is isn't straight out of, you know, the show that Kevin Smith is sequelizing. Yeah, to 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 give my two cents real quick about He-Man, I agree with you, Eric, that there's gotta be some sort of reveal about who Adora's true parentage is, and so inevitably there's gonna be some degree of that. I would be very satisfied if we saw Prince Adam as like part of the family being like, she's back, you're here. And no one ever really even said who that was because anyone who would care about it already knows. Yeah. And then maybe someday if someone rebuys the rights to this and wants to do more, they have that character they could like do something with. But let's live in a world where it's 52 episodes. I think it would be really odd to suddenly make a little boy be very important for the last like four i agree i think it's just an easter egg at this point (laughs) adora the horde stole you from your parents when you were a tiny baby so you never knew your mother and you never knew your father but you also had a twin brother (gasps) this man is your brother adora and adora he needs your help for the honor of Grayskull, Adora. For the honor of Grayskull? For the honor of Grayskull. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming in and taking time away from the conference. Uh, so you said you're a, a professor of communication. Uh, is there a place where folks can follow your work or your thoughts if, if they would like to? If they would like to, they can follow me on Twitter, although my Twitter is you know, has fits and, fits and starts of activity. But that is at Gonzo, G-O-N-Z-E-U-X. 
I love it. Do you, we don't have, we can cut this out if it doesn't work. <laughs> you brought a lot of notes as a professor is wont to do. Uh, in the spirit of previous guest, Trin, do you happen to have any final hot takes that you didn't get to share with us that maybe the fans should hear? Um, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> say something controversial to take this out. Get, be, get everyone mad at us on Twitter. Come on. Uh, no, this was just more for me to organize my thoughts. That's um, fine. That, if that's not the button, it's not the button. I, well, I don't want to delay or circle back necessarily, but I have some thoughts about Entrapta. Oh. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think she's my prime candidate for a redemptive arc. Because I, I feel like in the last, I don't know if it was the last episode or the last two episodes, I conflate those two. Um, but it's one of the, it has happened before, but it's one of the most, one of the first major times where she really, as they're about to pull the switch and she sort of realizes the impact of what they're about to do. It's one of the few times that she is really able to pull her focus away from the work and the technology and, and have empathy for um, the ways that this is going to impact other people. And she like visibly and through her dialogue um, has an emotional reaction to oh, it. Right, that part to was so it. sad when she said, I have to tell Hordak he'll understand. So I wonder if that's going to be a, a, a twist and maybe has something to do with either why Hordak has sent her away, why she's gone away. Um, we don't see her in the trailer. So you and Trin are at odds on this. All right, fandom, you've got your cat. <laughs> Have at it. We'll see what happens. We'll be back with some pretty, some more really sweet guests over the next couple weeks. Uh, oh, yeah. We got some good, good stuff planned for all of you. Yeah, uh, it's true. So we'll see you soon. Uh, thanks for listening. Listen to your Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.